Well, let's get started. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and just two ideas, basic ideas, that I'm hoping to focus on this morning. Nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, the Apostle Paul's theme, and then how he applied the cross to all the particular issues that were confronting the Corinthian church. So those are our two things. There were two questions that were raised uh, last time. The significance of the crucifixion and the reality of the demonstration uh, and power of the Holy Spirit. So those with those two questions, I kind of had them in mind as I prepared uh, this week. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, with uh, the word open before us and with the promise of your Holy Spirit here with us, we ask for wisdom and understanding as we look into your word, uh, not just for cognitive information, but for an impact in our own lives by the Spirit to the glory of the Father and in the name of the Son. Amen. So let's begin uh, with, uh, under number A, nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'd like to read the text from 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 2 through 5. See if I can do it without making comments. Uh, I'm always tempted to do that. But let me draw your attention to some of the themes that Paul um, draws out. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The Jews, they demand a sign. The Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, my brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. 
My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The word of the Lord. Some of you have seen the movie Silence, uh, Suseko Endo's uh, novel put to cinema by Martin Scorsese. Uh, maybe just to show of hands, how many have seen Silence? Okay. Uh, how many of you have read the book? Okay. Um, <laughs> well, one of the pressing issues, this will at least be relevant to Ron, uh, one of the pressing issues, you may not agree, but one of the relevant issues um, in the novel and in the movie is can Christianity really be planted in Japan? And it was a particular question that Suzeko Endo has wrestled with, this Japanese novelist, Christian, um, Roman Catholic background. And uh, the, the novel and the movie chronicle in the 17th century the advance of missionaries in a very, very difficult time. Uh, Christian, Christianity had taken root through Francis Xavier many years before, but then they hit into state-sponsored persecution. I think this is something we wrestle with all the time. When Christ comes into a culture, how adaptable, how receptive, how accepting is that culture of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And oftentimes we as Christians are trying to contextualize, trying to make it as relevant, trying to make it as approachable and as accessible as possible, and much of that is very good. But I think the Apostle Paul would probably say to us, Christianity is incompatible with every culture. Christianity is a radical break from all of its sociological, all of its anthropological expectations, all of its religious anticipations. Christianity, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, is a radical break from all cultures. No culture is compatible to the faith. And it is this message of the cross that uh, is of particular significance that Paul seems to constantly emphasize to this urbane, sophisticated, consumeristic, materialistic, individualistic culture of Corinth. So he goes for that which actually underscores the contrast, the antithetical nature of Christ to the culture. It's an interesting kind of approach, a strategy. Um, so he purposely comes unimpressively as a laborer, an artisan. He comes not with the kind of advanced team that religious experts in his day would have um, insisted on and people would have anticipated. He comes with fear and trembling. He comes with the message of the cross. Now, Fran asked week, last, asked, last, asked, last week, language, um, any significance about 
crucifixion, the cross. And I kind of knew right away when she asked why she was asking and the source of the question, because um, Fleming Rutledge, uh, an Episcopalian priest, well-known, I don't know how old she is, if she's in her 70s, but an excellent preacher, uh, wrote a book entitled Crucifixion. Uh, I list it there under number one. Uh, Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. And it was the Christianity Today Book of the Year. Um, 400 plus page book on the cross of Christ. And she does a wonderful job from many different angles, from the pastoral, the theological, um, understanding of Jesus Christ and his cross. And she has a chapter, and I list it there, the godlessness of the cross. And the significance that she draws out on the crucifixion is that this was just an utterly vile, repulsive act within that Roman world. It was a form of execution reserved for the lowest of the low, for the non-Roman slave class. And it was supposed to obliterate your humanity. It was to take away any semblance, any semblance of dignity or respect. And it was a very public and... uh, uh, and very gruesome scene that was depicted and used by the state to put down any sense of rebellion or opposition. And so Fleming Rutledge makes a great deal of the fact that Jesus was crucified. Uh, And she begins by talking about in 1998, there were uh, figures that were added to Westminster Abbey's If you've ever been to Westminster Abbey, you know at the entranceway, there's martyrs that are embedded in the church. Uh, Architecturally very significant Um, figures lined up. um, And these martyrs of the church, and she talked about those that were added for the 20th century, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Oscar Romero, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, And she said, nobody's really interested in how they died. They're martyrs for the sake of the church. But Rutledge would say how Jesus died is terribly significant because it underscores the irreligious nature of the crucifixion. Utterly repulsive. And Jesus took that on. Um, and the gospel is established through that which is just antithetical to any kind of religious sensibility or religious thought. And she would be concerned for uh, the quote in that under number one in the right column. Um, I'll just read the italicized print to get to Jürgen Moltmann's uh, quote. The italicized print executed publicly situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery devoid of clothing left to be eaten by birds and beasts. Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. 
And here Gun Moltmann warns us that by surrounding the scandal of the cross with roses, we forget its ugliness and shame. The point being that uh, if there would be any place to downplay the significance of the cross and a crucified Lord, it would have been Corinth. Play that part down, Paul, if you really want to get a good audience here in Corinth. And you just wonder in terms of uh, the, and a point that she brings out, uh, the third millennial uh, church, if there is not the temptation to, to reduce or to um, de-emphasize the importance of the cross, I guess when you have bishops that struggle over the name of Jesus, you're going to have bishops that struggle over the crucifixion. Um, because that really sets the faith apart, uh, the irreligiousness of the cross. Number two, the power of the wisdom of the cross. The logical thing for the early Christians would have been to glide past the passion as quickly as possible. That is what the Christians in Corinth wanted to do, but Paul would not let them. So he draws out that significance in the most profound way possible. In the service just now, um, in thinking about the gospel in relationship to culture, I thought of a book that uh, we read years and years ago by a missionary named Don Richardson. And the book was entitled Peace Child. Uh, this uh, dates us, I imagine, my wife and I. But uh, uh, Don Richardson was bringing uh, the gospel to an Indian tribe in... Pacific Islands somewhere, I forget exactly where. Um, and uh, this particular Indian tribe, the more he understood about the tribe, the more disillusioned he was with the ability to bring the gospel into this tribe. He found no redemptive analogy, nothing to connect with. After months of working with the language, months of working with them, he told the story of the cross. He told the story of the upper room and, the, uh, and Gethsemane. And as he was talking about Judas, they got really interested. Their eyes brightened. They, stood, uh, they sat up. They were intrigued. And when he told the whole story of Judas, Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, they were, they were just beside themselves with pleasure. As it turns out, the Judas figure was a hero to them. To really be so artful as to deceive and nobody kind of find you out, that skill. And so, I mean, he, he left that meeting that night just so total, like everything was reversed. Well, months continued with him studying the language, relating to the people, telling the story of the gospel with no effect because Judas was a hero. Um, a war broke out between two tribal factions, and I'll rush to the end here. But um, what brought eventually peace was one tribe giving a child 
to the other tribe and the tribe giving a child to the other tribe. And those were the peace children. And as long as those children survived, these two tribes pledged peace to one another. Well, there was his redemptive analogy. Christ is our peace child. Uh, so he did find a way into a culture that seems so antithetically oriented to the gospel. Uh, I was thinking about the sermon as well. Um, the second question that uh, came up last week, the meaning of the crucifixion. And Fleming Rutledge wants to see how just detestable and deplorable this image is. And Paul, rather than backing off, owns it. Why does he own it? Because we have absolutely no grounds for meriting salvation. And God has taken upon himself all the ugliness, all the sin, all the wrath, in order that he, we might be saved. And that flies in the face of any kind of meritocracy when it comes to religion or trying to um, kind of create our own salvation. So number three, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I think the person who asked that was somewhat concerned with um, maybe more the um, overt manifestations of the Spirit. Um, and how the power of the Spirit is expressed today, what signifies a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, I mean, toward the end of that italicized description of the text from chapter uh, 2, verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, what demonstrates the Spirit's power? Because this is what Paul is saying was essential for them to receive this gospel of a crucified Lord. They couldn't get to it naturalistically. They couldn't get to it through rational argumentation. They couldn't get to it kind of logically in the light of their culture. It was only by God breaking in and convincing them by the demonstration of the power of the Spirit. If you're looking for the humblest member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit qualifies. The shyest member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is that person. Because the Holy Spirit exists in order to bring glory to the Father, in order to represent the Son, and to illuminate that truth in our lives. The demonstration of the Spirit doesn't often come with uh, signs and wonders. That's possible. But really, the demonstration of the Spirit in the church at Corinth was convincing people that they really did need Christ. And, and the Apostle Paul draws out that, you know, it's not perchance that the ones who were really attracted to the gospel were at the lower ends of the social uh, class divisions of the culture. Let me read from three. A spirit who could diminish, distract, devalue, depreciate from the glory of Christ crucified in order to promote a more dazzling glory of his own, who passes by the sufferings of Christ in order to offer us a share of a painless and costless triumph is certainly not the Holy Spirit of the New Testament, who glorifies not himself, but Christ 
And therefore, his mission is to reveal the glory of Christ and to bring us into possession of all the blessings that by his death, Christ has won for us. So the Spirit encourages our understanding, the Spirit of truth, our advocate, the one who makes sense out of this gospel for us and convinces us. Uh, The fullness of the Spirit, I think, is expressed in uh, the fullness of the Sermon on the Mount and practical Jesus-like ways of making disciples globally. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. What comes to my mind, and probably Virginia's as well, is um, Norberto. Uh, Back in the 80s, when we were involved in a small Baptist church in the beaches area of Toronto, I was teaching full-time and also kind of, from their standpoint, pastoring full-time. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but um, uh, a blue-collar church, highest-paid person in the church was a teacher, Uh, public school teacher, Um, about 15% Portuguese uh, from the West Indies, and uh, a number from uh, um, blacks from Jamaica, and uh, and then white, old white Canadians. Norberto Priest was a young man um, who was dying from a brain tumor. And his family and his wife had come out of a Pentecostal church and uh, were really praying fervently for the Holy Spirit to bring about a miracle, to heal him. And we entered into that prayer for a miracle. Uh, I anointed him in the hospital. We prayed over him. The leadership of the church prayed. We became intensely involved with him. Um, Close to his dying, I was trying to prepare his wife for death. And at this point, Norberto looked as gruesome as you could look, um, with uh, pus coming out of all of his head, uh, orifice, his ears, his nose, his throat. I mean, just a really difficult, painful, Uh, experience. And uh, it seemed like death was imminent. And uh, Eleonora just, uh, she got so mad at me, furious. Now, I I look back on that, and I don't honestly think of ways I could have done it different. Uh, uh, I think of many things that I could have done differently pastorally, do realize. But in this case, I mean, we prayed over it, Uh, Every sentence I kind of had thought through, I knew I was kind of breaking really negative news. Uh, Our hope is in the resurrection. Uh, Noberto looks like he is going to pass. Um, And uh, this ended up to be about three weeks out from his death. And she wanted nothing to do with me, nothing to do with the church. That was it. And she called in a Pentecostal pastor who really believed. Um, And uh, I kind of thought that was probably it. Um, They were looking for a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God in a different way than I thought God was going to be working here. And um, Noberto died. um, And I did go uh, as soon as I heard that news. Um, And... Eleanor called me 
and said, you know, I'd really like you to preach the memorial service. I was kind of dumbfounded because um, I, I kind of thought that anger would persist, but the anger immediately dissipated for some reason. I guess maybe a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. Um, but I, I'd say all of this is that when you read Jesus's description of the Holy Spirit in the upper room, when you connected with the way the Apostle Paul talks about the Holy Spirit, see, the Holy Spirit's not drawing attention to itself. It, signs and wonders are a unique and peculiar way. I mean, one of the ways that I think the Holy Spirit is demonstrating power today is in um, the lives of Muslims in giving them visions of Christ. It is phenomenal. The story after story, this seems to be one of the ways that God is breaking into the life of Muslims is by giving them a vision of Christ and them coming to Christ. Uh, you can't reason people into the kingdom. You can't logically build this case. You can't argue their way, uh, argue the way into it. Um, and I think that's a, a dramatic demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God um, in our day. But read that upper room discourse sometime in terms of how the Spirit is described. Uh, you know, we have old language from basically the authorized version that speaks of the Holy Spirit as our comforter. And I think when we see that word comforter, we think of Hallmark cards and kind of a consoling sort of uh, warm and fuzzy approach of the Spirit. But that's really not a good translation of the advocate. Um, for me, when I think of the Holy Spirit now, and I've had some really positive law lawyer experiences in New York City with uh, just fine, really Christ-centered lawyers who were great advocates. Central Presbyterian Church wouldn't exist today apart from the Spirit of God working through those lawyers. And uh, I think that the Holy Spirit's kind of like our attorney, our advocate. And a really good attorney... Uh, I mean, there could be some feedback on this, but uh, and you wouldn't know it from the news, but really a good attorney does most of the work in the background and really has the back of the client. Um, and that's what I see the Holy Spirit doing. So crucifixion, demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God, two big things in the letter to the Corinthians. Any comments? Turn the page. <laughs> this is what I expected to get to last week. So if it takes me a class and a half to get to uh, nothing but the cross. Now, this is what, uh, and this is probably best done uh, in this context as a kind of quick survey. So I've identified 10 ways that the Apostle Paul plants the cross. Plants the cross in the life of the People of God, Church of Corinth. Now, I'm going to run through these, so um, follow them with me, if you would. Uh, number one, the nature of Paul's resolve. For I resolve to know nothing always with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That raises the whole uh, question in my mind of uh, the place where he had just come from was Athens and the description in Acts 17. And I do not see those two evangelistic experiences as incompatible. Like, well, I learned my lesson in Athens not to reason with you, and now I'm just going to preach the cross. I don't see that at all. Um, in Athens, in the synagogue, 
we're told that Paul preached the death and resurrection uh, of Christ. It was when he got on the Aeropagus and, and was talking about uh, debating with the Epicureans um, uh, that I think you get the, the message of Acts 17 where he's trying to reason with them from God, the God of creation to the reality of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But here... We'll see now how Paul planted the cross. Number two, oh, by the way, my first experience of this kind of idea of where the cross uh, was planted um, in the book of Corinthians occurred in 1983. Um, I was uh, one of 15 North Americans along with 15 South Americans, and we met in Siravaca, Mexico, a small village outside of Mexico City, for a theology conference on Latin American liberation theology and uh, an evangelical response. 30 of us, we slept on cots. Very, it's been, it still stands for me, the best theology conference I've ever been to. Uh, we ate together, we sat around a big table, the 30 of us, we debated each other's papers. There was no coffee shop to run away to with one other guy. You had to just be there. Um, and John Howard Yoder, probably the most uh, famous Mennonite theologian of the 20th century, was there, 6'5", thin as a rail, long, long, greasy hair. And he stood up with his Bible, and he traced the cross in the letter to the Corinthians. And he showed how the cross was central to everything Paul said. It was un I couldn't forget it if I wanted to. Um, and it's changed the way I look at this letter because Paul very artistically, very poetically, you know, he says he's not eloquent. Well, he's not eloquent in trying to be eloquent. He's eloquent in the sense that wisdom and truth make it eloquent. Uh, number two, the foundation for our identity and unity and is in the cross. Now, one of the problems that persisted in the church at Corinth was they had favorites. They liked Peter. They liked Apollos. They liked Paul. They even had a group called, you know, the Christ-likers. Um, and this was what Paul said about that. Number two, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is in Christ Jesus. At the center of the unity of the people of God was the cross of Christ. Number three, community discipline within the covenant people of God on the basis of the cross. Uh, the particular issue uh, that is being described here is the, an issue of incest where um, a son is uh, having an affair with his father's wife. Probably uh, he was from another marriage is the thought there. And Paul is addressing this thorny issue in the life of the church. And this is what he says, number three, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, you see, the Exodus and the Passover, that created an identity. 
Israel was fashioned into a people. They moved into uh, the wilderness and everything that was, everything about that description of this people was designed to set them apart as a holy people through whom the nations of the world could be blessed. And the Passover was central to that. It was the basis upon which they were reconciled to God. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Why do we enjoy being a people of God? Because we have been fashioned by the cross of Christ. Uh, and that's put aside the sin uh, that so easily besets us and taken on sincerity and truth. Number four, uh, just a few more and then uh, we'll quit. Um, the issue in number four is, uh, was lawsuits. They were suing one another. Uh, what makes that complicated for us, I mean, just in terms of interpre interpreting the book of Corinthians, I think you have to understand that uh, Paul is not insisting here that within a fair legal system, Christians who disagree with one another can't sue one another. Uh, we're talking here about a system of uh, meritocracy and greed and graft and Paul said, are you going to subject your debate, your questions to this kind of uh, very biased judicial system? Uh, nevertheless, even the principle is good where the system is uh, fair or relatively fair. Uh, Paul's thinking, number four, why not rather be wronged? Why not take it? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. You take advantage of the system in order to put down fellow Christians. Mm, that's not right. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Again, planting the cross. You were washed, you were redeemed, you were sanctified. Don't act otherwise. Act in the light of what Christ has given to you. Well, um, we can pick that up. Uh, next week, um, Fontaine, can I give you a job? Can you check with Gil about the air conditioning? Uh, you've been really nice. I hope you've lost a little weight um, while you've listened. This has been a bit of a workout. Quiet one. Um, but you might... You might... Well, you might just look through these if you're interested. Um, and I want to uh, come back to this, but I want to move on to the end of the book next week. And I, I'd like two weeks in 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection because that's such a masterful chapter um, in this book. Let's close with prayer. Uh, Lord God, we seek your blessing. May your face shine upon us and may you give us your peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Amen.